We have support from around the world. We have support from Australia, South Africa, Chile. Just a whole raft of countries have come to our aid. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Peckis. And on this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, a conversation with the Consul General of Canada to New York. Tom Clark is the Consul General of Canada to New York State, and he was recently in New York's North Country to talk about cross-border issues and visit Canadian-owned businesses and manufacturers in the region. The visit comes at a time when most of the focus in our region is on the effect of Canadian wildfires. Consul General of Canada to New York, Tom Clark, sat down with WAMC's North Country Bureau Chief, Pat Bradley. Climate change, that's what's happening. The forests are dry, the temperature is extremely high in the Arctic. One village in the Arctic uh, a couple of weeks ago registered 93 degrees. That's never been seen before in the Arctic. So when you have that combination, then you get lightning, and that sets off the wildfires. To give you an idea, the average number of wildfires that we have, say in June, this year was 14,000% higher than the normal amount of uh, forest fires that we have. So that gives you some idea. And it's not just in Quebec, it's not just in the east, but it's coast to coast. It's British Columbia, it's Alberta, it's uh, every province has got wildfires this year. So what has this meant for Canada's stature around the world? Because all they're thinking about is the smoke that is now settling in from these wildfires. And I'm now living in New York, and I hear it a lot. They sort of say, we kind of like you, but, you know, can you do something about the smoke? The reality is that there's nothing that we can do. It's all about the winds. But one thing that is hard to explain to somebody from New York, New York City in particular, is why is there continuing amount of smoke? And why are we saying, as we are, that this may last well into August, it may even go into September? Here's the deal. A lot of these fires are burning in areas that are so remote. There are no people around, no roads, no infrastructure, no nothing. And you can't really fight them. So literally, you have to let them burn themselves out or wait for winter for them to uh, extinguish themselves. What we do is that we're fighting hard the forest fires that are encroaching on human habitation or infrastructure. We are, as a result of the extraordinary amount of fires we've got this year, we are fighting further and further north than we have before. But the simple reality is the area is so vast We can't land firefighters there. There's no camps. There's no, as I said, no roads. And so you really are left with, unfortunately, having to look at it and say, the forest has to take care of itself. What has Canada's reaction to the multiple countries that have stepped up to help? Uh, uh, Well, we've been overwhelmed with the support that we've got. And I must say, one of the first calls that I got was from Governor Hochul in New York, Governor Murphy in in, uh, New Jersey, the mayor of New York, the fire chief of New York City called. And she said, look, in Manhattan, we don't have a lot of experience fighting forest fires, (laughs) but if there's anything we could do to help, let us know. Our American neighbors have really been stand-up friends throughout all of this. And I, you know, it's tough for me because I'd love to say, you know, we can bring this to an end. But as I, as I explained to you, we can't in a timely way. 
But we have support from around the world. We have support from Australia, South Africa, Chile. Just a whole raft of countries have come to our aid. And it is deeply appreciated because we there's no country in the world that has the infrastructure necessary to fight these fires. You can only do it collectively, and even then, the best you can do is hold the line. Tom Clark, recently Amtrak said it was going to suspend and has suspended service between Albany and Montreal because its partner, rail service in Canada, has said that if the tracks get above 80 or 90 degrees, it has to slow its service. And so it's suspended the rail service, which has upset some of the local folks here in in the North Country. The track heat provision, is that something that Canada has set? Is that a a provision in any sort of Canadian law? No, this is is the regulations, internal regulations of Canadian National. Now, that's a private company, as Amtrak is a private company. And really what we've got here are two private companies who are in a commercial dispute. And there's very little space for a government to be involved in that dispute. They've got to work it out for themselves. The one thing I will say, though, and let me take you back to last year. In British Columbia, there was a town called Lytton, British Columbia, and a train went through, and sparks came off the rails of the train. Uh, The town was destroyed, burnt. It was was turned into oblivion. There was nothing left of Lytton. So that concern is very real. How that concern is dealt with is really has to be left to these two private commercial enterprises to figure out. But can Canada, the Canadian government, alleviate the situation in any way to get the you know rail service active again? You know, can they say the temperature is too high? We're going to federally set a different temperature, a, a situation where. Yeah, the ambient temperature may be 90 degrees, but that's set too high. It may be lower it to 80 degrees or something. It would be very difficult for the federal government to do something like that uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Tracks can be made resilient to heat and to cold, uh, but they require great upgrades in order to do that. And that really is at the heart of uh, this private dispute between these two private companies. And, you know... We as a government, look, we're, we're, you know, we're saddened by this as well. Anything that gets in the way of the relationship is not a good thing. Uh, but there are times when you have to sit back and say, these two commercial entities have to work this out and figure it out. There's arguments, as you know, on both sides of this dispute. Uh, there's no clear narrative that says why this is happening the way it's happening. And uh, it would be wrong, I think, for a government to get involved in the middle of that dispute. Speaking of businesses, another thing that happened here in the region recently, Nova Bus announced that it would close its manufacturing plant in Plattsburgh by 2025. Is there any indication that other Quebec companies manufacturing or working in the U.S., particularly in the Plattsburgh area, are tentative about the U.S. economy and may pull out of the U.S. and the North Country region. 
Certainly not that I have heard of. I've heard no indication of that whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. We're very bullish on what's happening here. We think that the opportunities for Plattsburgh, the North Country, in fact, all of upstate New York are tremendous. I was at Alstom here in Plattsburgh and taking a look at their their plant here in Plattsburgh and what they're doing elsewhere in the state of New York. And they're growing. They're, they're getting big. They see opportunities all over the place. So, no, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that the case of Novabus, which, again, was, was uh, very sad. Anytime a company feels that it has to retreat, uh, it's always uh, bad. I would say this, though, you know, yes, if there's a silver lining anywhere, and I don't mean to be Pollyannish about this, but the great success of Plattsburgh happened because the airbase closed. The blossoming of Plattsburgh came from a negative. And look what has happened to this place since the airbase closed. It has become an extraordinary, extraordinary example of human resiliency and what you can do. So in defeat, there is always victory. Tom Clark, you mentioned you were at Alstom. Why are you in Plattsburgh? <laughs> Plattsburgh and the North Country, in fact, all of upstate New York, is extremely important to Canada. We take this relationship really seriously. I don't think that there's any other place in the United States on the border that gets the relationship more and better than the people of Plattsburgh do. And I think it's because they live it every single day. It's so much a part of who they are and what they do that they really understand how both countries can benefit, how both sides can benefit from this. There's such cooperation, there's such history between these two parts of the world. And so when I was appointed Consul General, there were two promises that I made, and one was that my first trip outside of New York City was going to be to Albany, because I wanted to establish that first and foremost, and that my first out trip beyond that was going to be up here in the North Country. This is a relationship that we tend to all the time. We love the people up here, but we love what you're doing up here. And, you know, we back up those, those words of love with actual uh, dollars. I mean, we've got Canadian companies. Plattsburgh, Clinton County alone sells $230 million of goods and services to Canada every year. That's just Clinton County. And when you take a look at all of New York, it's $50 billion dollars. Uh, that goes from New York up to Canada. So our relationship is big, it's huge, it's significant, and the worst thing we could do is take it for granted, and I'm not about to do that. And not a local or regional question regarding the relationship, but um, we've got the big NATO summit uh, over in Europe. What can we expect from Prime Minister Trudeau during his visit over there? Because I've heard He's planning to talk about defense spending and the role in Ukraine's bid to join NATO and stuff. What can we expect from the prime minister during that meeting? Well, I don't want to get ahead of the prime minister and what he's going to say, but I think that Canada's position on this has been fairly clear to everybody, and that is that, at, as, as does the United States, we support Ukraine for uh, as long as it takes uh, for victory. Uh, there can only be one outcome in Ukraine, and it has to be the Ukrainians scoring a victory and repelling the invaders. Uh, that said, the question is, how do you get there, and, and 
what the role is for NATO. Look, we were one of the founding members of NATO. We have been with NATO since the very beginning. Uh, we have been training Ukrainian troops well before the Russian invasion happened. We, we've been active training Ukrainian troops since 2014. So a lot of our experience there has, uh, you know, educated us a lot as to the nature of the conflict, but also the nature of the character of the people of Ukraine, just because we've been on the ground for so long in Ukraine. So I think that we'll be helpful in the sense of being able to move the NATO discussion along about Ukraine using our experience and using our instincts about, about what's happening. The ultimate decision by NATO, and I think what we've seen already in the statement, uh, which has not been necessarily well received by Ukraine, but nevertheless, I think is a very thoughtful approach on the part of NATO to say that we are proceeding in a certain direction and, and that that, if you think about it, even though it may not be the robust statement of we want Ukraine to join tomorrow, but if you take a look at where NATO and Ukraine were just a year ago to where they are today, it has, there's been a tremendous advance. The mechanics of how it all works, the timing of how it all works, but Ukraine must never confuse uh, the statement of NATO with a statement of non-support. All of us, the United States in particular, uh, are spending an enormous amount of our treasure uh, defending the people of helping the Ukrainians defend themselves. And we're going to continue doing that. And I think, you know, we collectively in the West um, are in a new era. We're in an era of war. And we haven't been here for a long time. So I think that part of the discussion that we're going to be seeing at NATO is going to be that very change in the nature and what that means for responsibilities of NATO members, what it means for preparedness of NATO members. Um, but we're pretty proud of our accomplishments, not only in Ukraine, but also in the Baltic states where we're very active as well. We have a battle group there. So we're not retreating at all, but we're in a new era. Some. I think don't understand that because the war is not at the home front. Exactly. And it's not even a war that we necessarily see, you know, on the evening news uh, in the way that we used to if we go back to the days of Vietnam or even Iraq. Um, the Iraq war where we were involved, everybody was involved and therefore we had eyes on it. This is a much different war for us. It is a little bit more at arm's length. Um, and, you know, I hate using the old expression of Anthony Eden when he said that this is a war of people who we don't know who live very far away. But in a way, it is our war because it is a war about the future of democracy. And if there's one thing that holds us all together, it is that we are in the fight of our lives for democracy, for liberal democracy around the world. And we're losing that war. If you take a look at the number of democratic countries today as opposed to 10 years ago, democracy is in a slight retreat. And so the call to arms, even though it's in Ukraine, it really is among all democratic nations that we have to stand up for what we believe to be the best system in the world and that uh, guarantees the most freedom in the world to individuals. We can't lose sight of that. And right now that's all being funneled through 
the very brave people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives. Tom Clark, Council General of Canada, thank you. Thank you very much. This has been fun. Okay, that does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Ian Pickus.